traveling through this book of Colossians now uh, for a little while that Paul wrote to this church in Colossae and we've covered uh, again and again, I've been backing over it, the relationship that Paul has and the reason for this letter and then we've been looking at and we'll look at again the content that flowed out of that, namely the gospel about Jesus Christ the Lord, which is a little phrase that Paul uses in this particular letter to describe the, like the, the, the who Jesus is. A historical figure, promised Messiah, and not only that, Lord, over our lives, over the universe, over everything. And then how that gospel completely transforms uh, your life. And so that your life does things like it it begins to uh, put off certain things, begins to die toward the the power of the destructive uh, scripts, if you like, of sin. And then then also how we begin to put on um, new new life, uh, putting on the new life that is animated in Christ and and that is uh, within us, the living power and qualities of this new life that is actually found in the risen Lord Jesus. And then Tuck Bartholomew, what a, where do these people get these names? He, he's from Redeemer Church in New York, and he says, because of our union, because of this union that we have with Christ, we are, we are kind of growing up in him, with him. And because we are growing up in him, this, this raised to life in him, what it means is that we are constantly rethinking we are constantly understanding or seeking to understand what it means to live uh, every aspect of our lives in the light of his greatness in the light of his love of his mercy and all these ways his life his death his resurrection his ascension and how all of these realities that jesus did for us on our behalf come and shape and transform us if the statement that we have died with Christ and we have been raised with Christ and all of what I just discussed then applies to us, then how in turn uh, do our lives get lived toward Jesus? How do we fold these things back? How are our lives and the roles that we play in our lives animated by his presence and his power that he exercises through us, through the, through the work of the Spirit? Last week we saw how Paul described this uh, as the practice of seeking things that are above, of setting our minds on things that are above. And that is to be shaped by the, the ongoing uh, known and revealed realities of Jesus. Like we don't have to guess about what, Je- like he showed us what he's like and who he is. And now that, is, that still remains. That's still something that's residing up in heaven. We are not to be shaped any longer by the old scripts of sin that, that kind of tear apart relationships, that corrupt relationships that, that, are, that, are, that are there for selfish gratification, for selfish gain. And, and, and in doing so, if, if our lives are shaped by that, then they no longer proclaim Jesus who is in heaven, but some other kind of thing, some other corrupted, distorted thing that we've, we've been constructing. Now, part of the reason why we back over all of this uh, is before we get started and what Paul writes today in these verses that Krista read to us, uh, is that we've got to recognize that what Paul writes here is for Christians. He is talking to Christians. It's Christians who cannot escape what Paul is being, what Paul is saying here. It's for those who call Jesus Lord. 
of their lives. It is for those who are being transformed by his grace that comes from having Jesus as Lord. If you read this passage through, that you will see that on seven occasions, Paul references these relational symptoms of the gospel as being lived out because of the primary relationship of the Lord, of being in a relationship with Jesus. Now, it's hard enough for Christians to actually go and live this out. Like, you know, get this wrong all the time. But when you start expecting or enforcing people who have not encountered Jesus, that they, that they should live like this, then what you get is you need institutional power, not grace, to achieve it in the lives of people. You end up prescribing or needing white-knuckled kind of behavior modification, not deep heart transformation that comes from the anim- being animated by the presence of Jesus, by the presence of his spirit in our lives. When verses like this from Paul get into the hearts of people who haven't encountered grace, then they tend to be used very, very poorly. They tend to be used to validate cultural patterns of oppression and power and hierarchies and abuse, which are some of the misuses of this passage that we've seen, some of the misapplications of this passage that we've seen over the journey of time. A lot of ink has been spilled trying to, to get at what Paul, what Paul is actually encouraging. And a lot of abuse and misuse has been applied to these verses over the centuries. Some of it quite horrendous. Now, I don't propose that I'm going to uh, answer all the questions, tidy up all the conjecture. It's possible listening to me may even, you know, arise some more questions, but that's healthy and that's good. But let's see if we can get at the picture of human flourishing that Paul says is symptomatic of the changed and transformed life of the, of the Christian, those who have been raised with Christ. Just a note, just a point. What is extraordinary and what we should keep in mind is the fact that God is actually interested in the day-to-day lives of people. Everyone from the powerless to the powerful. God has no favoritism. And where his gospel goes, God lifts up the powerless and he humbles the powerful so that they can meet each other as equals, so they can meet each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the work of the gospel lived out. And everywhere it goes, it transforms lives. And those lives transform the culture, this culture inside this room, to look more and more like the kingdom of God and then and that should seep out and and infiltrate bigger culture now that's a historic fact that's what's been borne out through history so one of the first things that we have to do uh, and we should do with any of the ethical imperatives and commands that are a product of the gospel is recognize that they are spoken to Christians and they are spoken in a particular time into a particular culture with the intention of changing or turning it toward an ethic found in Jesus. So that God's design and care for the well-being of individuals, God's design and care for the well-being of community is is seen and is, is celebrated, is experienced there. And Paul is not establishing here a a universal, you know, worldwide set of rights to be demanded, but is pushing across the table uh, the ethic of the cross, as uh, Tuck Bartholomew discusses, 
It is though Paul is thinking out aloud, though he's in the room of us and he's saying, what does it look like in the roles that we play, in the roles that we play as wives and husbands, as children and parents, as masters and slaves, to have all these relationships shaped by our relationship with Christ and his love towards us so that we might not merely just privately be shaped by that, but that we might relationally, with the relationships we hold in these roles, and publicly reflect the new creation that Jesus is working in us, that we are being renewed in him. His love and his ethics are shaping our lives to shape the lives of those around us. Like That's, that's what we looked at in our, in our little series of um, the, the one another's. The ministry of one another. This is, this is part of that working out. Paul is, as Louis Giglio says in his little uh, video on this thing, he's getting up in our faces. Faith in God is not merely a private and internal thing. It should result in Jesus being seen and celebrated in our lives, in our relationships, in our, in our corporate lives. God does care about our our real lives, real issues such as marriage, such as workplaces, homes and schools and sporting fields. That's why Paul is getting into our business and pushing the ethic of Jesus into those areas. The areas of life that Paul speaks about just in this little passage here fall into two camps, those who have power and those who don't have power. You have Wives, children, and slaves don't have power, but are extraordinarily and kind of scandalously addressed first, like the wives addressed before the husband. And then in relationship with the powerless, with them, you have those with power, the husbands and parents and masters. It's this kind of dualism, if you like. And they are all equally being asked to consider how they live out their roles in the light of the grace of Jesus that's in their lives. And I can't stress it enough that here is the beginning of equality. You you simply don't find a codified, codified relational system anywhere before this, before what we find in the New Testament that, that raises the powerless like those that we find here in, in, in this verse from Paul, and humbles the powerful to be co-equals, to do life together. But that is how God sees people. And that is why Paul begins to shift the culture, or begin to demand, really, the culture within the church to start to look like this, to start to represent God's design for relationships. What is controversial, controversial about these verses is not that Paul asks wives to be submissive, even though our modern minds hear that word in a very negative context, and possibly so they should, but, but the fact that he addresses them at all in that culture, in that time, in that context. In a culture that saw women and, and children and slaves to a similar degrees as inferior across all lines, physically, mentally, emotionally, legally. They're just objects, uh, property. Paul's address to wives as equal to the male audience would have just sucked all the oxygen out of the room. That's the scandal. 
Paul shows due and equal respect to the wives as having minds and wills of their own. They can self-determine. This is the first... Uh, this is the first time that, 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 that uh, religious writings and things like this get actually written down. No one apart from Jesus has actually moved towards and treated women like this. And so Paul is just carrying on. Uh, 3.18, wives, submit to your husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. Now, like I said, I don't know if I, I will uh, clear up all the questions I still have some, but let's look at what we can know. And as I've already said, the first thing is the fact that Paul uh, instantly gives value uh, uh, to the wives by addressing them personally and addressing them first. They are, they are ethically and, and they are aptitudinally, is that a word? You know, um, responsible partners, co-equals co here. The verb submit here does not convey some innate inferiority, but has been used for a, a modest, cooperative demeanor that puts others first. Sound like someone else we know? It's something that is expected of all Christians, regardless of rank. If you, if you are in Christ, then you're going to probably behave like this, right? Another thing is that all the power to submit, all the power to, to do this command of submitting is with the wife. The way the sentence is constructed in, in the Greek and all that kind of weird stuff is that it is an act of will from the wife, not a law, not a demand of the husband, not some rule of universal kind of uh, unconditionality that's being enforced on her. Submission here, based on the Greek wording, is not something that is forced on the wife, but something that she initiates, something that she has ownership of, that she constructs. It makes the wife's submission her willing choice, not some universal law that ordains you know, masculine dominance in a marriage, in a relationship. And the motive for this submission is that it is fitting to the Lord. The nature of it is how does, how does this speak well of, reflect well of my relationship with Christ? Some things may be culturally expected and accepted, but upon reflection on them in the Lord, on the things that are above that we've been talking about, as I, as I sit and I think, it leads to a realization that they are unfit for a Christian. They are unfit to be in this marriage. Now, some of the submission is unavoidably to model the kind of willful submission in the Godhead. Wives are Christians because Jesus submitted his life to the plan of the Father. So how does that aspect of their Lord and Savior now shape their roles as wives is the question that Paul is pushing across the table for consideration. Some of this rolls back into the fact that God gives order to life. There is a whole conversation about the relational order of how marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. This is a functional value based uh, in, in a marriage, uh, not a value-based thing. It has nothing to do with some quality or value of the husband or wife, but about how a healthy society needs order to flourish. And you can see there is a lot to think about in what Paul's saying here. 
And I think that thinking is done relationally as you grow up in relationship with Christ and as you grow in relationship in your marriage. How does my role in our marriage allow Jesus to be seen and celebrated? What does it look like in our marriage to live out the imperatives of Colossians 3.18? Now, another thing that we can know, and we can know this without a shadow of a doubt, this is probably the one thing that I will say with unwavering confidence Submission is not something that sees a wife under any circumstances follow a husband or a man into sin or allow a husband or a man to sin against her. That is not what submission looks like. And we can know that unequivocally because of what? Because of the whole entire Bible. Where a man sins against a woman, it is always written up negatively. It always has negative, dire consequences. We can know that because of the life of Jesus, where Jesus is constantly lifting women out of abusive situations and giving them value and giving them dignity. And we can know that in particular in this case because Paul has spent the whole front end of this letter saying that we are to die to sin. Sin and sinful practices have no place in the life of a Christian. So how on earth could they possibly have a place inside a marriage? Why on earth would a wife have to submit herself to something that that Paul has just utterly forbidden? Submission never looks like staying in in an abusive relationship. It just doesn't. It never, never will. Submission that is fitting to the Lord always asks, how do I use my role as a wife so that Jesus is seen and celebrated? And then uh, I, think, I think it was Louis Giglio that said this, without even taking a breath, uh, Paul addresses husbands, and he has a lot more demanding instructions to say to the husband. They have all the rights of the law at their backs. They have all the privileges and the power of culture at their backs. They're the ones with power uh, in this context, in this time, uh, as Paul speaks. So what does it mean to turn power toward Jesus and have it shape a marriage? Well, it looks like using it to love across all lines, regardless of how you feel uh, or regardless of what culture permits or accepts. It looks like loving sacrificially. It looks like loving your wife as Christ has loved you. It looks like loving your wife as Christ loved the church. That's the picture that Paul paints in Ephesians 5.25. Husbands are to use their resources to celebrate, to nurture their wives, to, to be so attentive and tuned to that they know what makes them tick. They understand them. That's Genesis. And then, and then to take that understanding and then enrich them to work out what they are gifted at and to light that up and be the champions of their flourishing. That's Genesis. That's Ephesians. That's Colossians. That's what's being said. And Paul's further instruction to the husband is to expand out that this love is also an act of the will. It's not given only if it suits the husband or if his wife pleases him. 
a point that was very um, important to the Pharisees uh, when they were talking about to Jesus. They read about that in Matthew 19. The NIV translates Paul's next command to the husbands, do not be harsh with them, which would rule out any behavior that is overbearing, that is tyrannical, uh, that is intimidating towards a wife. David Garland in his commentary points out that while that is true, and it is, uh, this is not the behavior of sacrificial love, the verb that the NIV translates as harsh is actually in the passive voice. So being in a passive voice means that it's internal, so to speak. It's not external. So it can be translated more like this. Don't become embittered. Don't become resentful. This is now heart stuff, not, 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 not actions, not the product of the heart, if you like. Paul is going after the heart, the emotions, the feelings. It's easy to modify behavior. It's easy not to, you know, be abu- abusive, if you like, and still have uh, unloving feelings towards someone. In fact, feel contempt and rage and, and whatever, particularly if the wife is far from submissive. She has some irritating qualities, which Paul obviously expects is going to exist in a marriage. Otherwise, he wouldn't write this. Husbands don't get to just walk away or make their lives, their wives' lives, difficult in return. Husbands are to, are to be the ones, uh, are the ones being asked here to love across all lines, even when our pride is wounded. Again, no one should tolerate sinful abuse in relationships, even husbands, so don't stay in an abusive relationship. But a wife that is occasionally defiant or disrespectful does not cancel out the husband's absolute obligation to love his wife. So you know how we get husbands sulking and fuming, grumbling, or worse, lashing out in verbal and physical violence is strictly forbidden here. Rather, the husband has the responsibility to be the initiator, the one who heals, the one who begins forgiveness, the one who seeks restoration in the relationship. Why do we know that? Because that's how Jesus rolls. Paul recognizes that bitterness in positions of power can lead to wholesale destruction. Better to turn your wounded pride toward the cross, toward how Jesus has loved you and allow that to start to medicate the environment and the marriage. Husbands need to be living in that space before they feel their pride wounded or damaged. Like, if you're not already there, you're going to be in trouble when it comes. You need to have your relationship with your wife constantly animated and shaped by your own union with Jesus. And then Paul moves on, and rather unexpectedly, he starts to address children. Another part of the social fabric that normally gets overlooked, and again, he lifts them to a place of dignity, and he addresses them like they too are like actual members of the community, of the congregation. Paul, uh, Paul put it, seem, seems, the way Paul puts it, he seems to feel that children have just as much capacity to come to faith as adults, to have a relationship in Christ as their parents do. 
kids, children can turn their lives towards Jesus. And then they can also begin to think about how that, how their union with Christ begins to reflect in their lives, how they operate in their roles and, and, the, and the systems that they find themselves in, namely with their parents. Kids can invest into their own faith. Now, obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but I think Paul here, you know, is addressing children that can analyze and respond to relational information. So you're not talking to a, like a, a two-year-old. Perhaps not even like our junior kids' church. But nevertheless, regardless of that, the principle of, of, of lifting kids up as being valuable stands as a universal principle. Well, what does it look like for those that can, can engage in it? Well, it looks like honoring and respecting your parents because that's your primary relational role, right? And not because they get it right and are awesome at it all the time. Like Those parents just don't exist but because of your union with the Lord and because it pleases him. And again, this is unique. Children are given the same value in the faith as adults. But again, God values children, sees them as equal as adults, yeah? So they are asked the question, how is Jesus seen and celebrated in my relationship with my parents? How does my understanding of God's love for me shape how I exist in my family? Kind of deep questions for a kid, yeah? But Paul says, even children have the capacity to have a vital relationship with God. And they should be given the opportunity to do that, to grow in that, to have that shape their lives. That's why Tim, who's out there with our kids at the moment, runs our youth program not as a, let me tell you what you should think. Let me give you the rules and all the regulations, and then you've just got to go and do all this stuff. But he runs it more like, let me help you understand what to think. Let me help you understand what is being said about God here. And then let's have a conversation and see how that shapes your own life. Well, that's what's going out in that room right now. Let me hear from you what you think about God value and dignity for our, our youth kids right now. Well, I haven't whipped the kids into the line. Not really, because we wouldn't whip kids these days. It's a phrase, a euphorism. Paul now turns to mum and dad. Parents, says Paul, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. As parents... One of the jobs you have is to model the love of God as experienced in your own relationship with Jesus and then just pour that into the lives of your kids. You are to use your power and your role in their lives to nurture and grow a picture of God that they will want to run to, right? Not run away from. Like doctrinal cruelty or overbearing embitterment in our kids is disastrous. I mean, it's hard enough without it. Paul says, remember that your children are human beings created in the image of God. Yes, you have power. You have a job to do in teaching them rules, in teaching them respect, and growing them up to be good citizens and all that sort of stuff. But don't do it like a fool. Don't provoke and embitter your kids. Because they are just being the sinful little creatures that came out of the womb. Use your power for them to see them come to get a good picture of who it is that shapes your life. Now you can do that by, by sharing scripture with them, by reading scripture to them 
and all that sort of stuff and, and, and giving them all the rules and, and bits and pieces out of bowl. But you can also do that most profoundly. You will do that by how you roll toward your children, how you are towards your children. You can bang all the rules and rights down and demand uh, you know, that they behave like the Bible says they behave. But if you are cruel and insensitive as you do that, then, then by and large, they'll just, Bible can get stuffed. Jesus can take a hike. Now, that's not an overarching rule because the grace of God is far greater than any sort of thing a parent can do. Now, does this mean you just let your kids do what they like? That's not the picture here. Paul is saying, treat your kids with dignity. If you have made a mistake, fix it. If, you have, if, you have, if you're the wrong, one in the wrong, go in and seek forgiveness. You know, if you've been a jerk, apologize. You don't get to say, I'm the parent here, suck it up. That's probably an abuse of power and the role that God has given you. Show your kids that a, what a parent shaped by Jesus is like. They can admit mistakes. They can seek forgiveness because they themselves are secure in the forgiveness of God who has forgiven their mistakes and their stupidity. Like we are to image God to our kids. It happens to me all the time. You know, kids are just out of control. Most of our kids are gone now, but they're doing some like... Um, saying don't do something don't don't stab your sister with a knife or whatever they're doing and they're like i'll do whatever i want and i'm like ah you know if only kids would just do what i say look give me compliant kids why won't they do what i say this is too much and then i just hear god speaking back to me i know i've said this a few times to you before oh do tell me mason what it's like to have children that are non-compliant that don't do what i ask that seek actively to go against my good advice and ruin their lives. Tell me what that's like, Mason. I'd love to hear that story. And so we begin to learn the gospel through our kids. And we should be modeling to them how God has moved towards us. Now, I've got off my notes and I don't know where I am. But Paul continues to defy the shift uh, and cultural practice of the day. And he addresses slaves now. And he addresses them as equal members of the community again. And we struggle with the idea that Paul is not is accommodating slavery rather than just outright condemning it. That because of the, the the imagery that our modern minds has of the horrific development of slavery. And even slavery in the day then was pretty horrific. But if we just do that, what we do is we rob Paul of his courage here and, and, and his ability to once again lift culture, to shift culture within the church and, and give dignity to a group of people who are considered, you know, morally incapable of deciding to do what's good. Just as a general rule of thumb, they're ruled by their passions and, desire, and their desires, incapable of contributing uh, to society to, to, in any good way, unless they're guided, unless they're directed, unless they're beat with sticks, this kind of thing. And here Paul treats them, in particular Christian saves, as being morally responsible, as having just as much to contribute to the community as anybody else. Like, how do you pastorally care? 
for people who are at the bottom of the food chain when there's no actual cultural reform or no law uh, coming anytime soon that lifts them. These people are the most powerless of the powerless and nothing is changing just yet in the world they live. Like it only began to change as Paul began to write stuff like this. Not all of them will get a handwritten letter from Paul like Onesimus to Philemon. That's what the book of Philemon is all about. Telling Philemon, the master of Onesimus, to accept him back and treat him as a brother in Christ, not a slave. It's the book of Philemon in which Paul writes to, to a Christian master and says slavery as a way of seeing someone and treating someone actually has no place at all in this community. But to slaves in general, still trying to live out uh, in a culture that is dependent on their existence. I think someone wrote in one of the commentaries that Roman culture was as dependent on slaves as we are on, on fossil fuels. Like just to rip them out of the context would just about collapse every economic framework in, in the modern world. So it's a hard shift. So how do you pastorally care to these people who are going to be in this work? Well, Paul reminds them of their standing in Christ and to live out their work and practice and relationships in light of that reality. Like that too will never, never change. And not the environment and the culture that they find themselves in. Paul also reminds them that while they may not receive anything of value here on earth with their approach to work as though they are, you know, to work like they are working for the Lord, but their union in Christ means that, that heaven is theirs and that all of the inheritance that comes with that is theirs. A union with Christ guides how they work and relate to their masters and how they understand their worth and dignity, not the culture around them. Literally, the closest thing we have is actually our workplaces. And how does the way we approach our work environment as an employee allow Jesus to be seen and celebrated in our lives. Now, Paul's not a radical ideologist. He's aware that these cultural abuses don't change without relationships. That's what he's doing. He knows that Christianity is grown relationally. It's transmitted through relationships, and it can be done even by those who are culturally powerless. And finally, the last group that Paul addresses is another one in the, that has power, and they are the masters. And they are told to do what is right and fair towards their slaves, to provide what is right and fair. Why? Well, because they have a master in heaven. Again, he's talking to Christians, right? This is a strident stand against the abusive, legal, and cultural uh, practices towards slave. Abusive practices mistreatment of slaves is going to be something that your master in heaven holds you to account for might not be held to account down here the law might let you get away with it down here but it has no place in the kingdom of god so don't be shaped by the practices and the cultures be shaped by the practice of god be shaped by how jesus dealt with you did he deal with you according to the law no, Jesus, rather than applying the law to you, absorbs and, and, and bears the cost of the law, the cost of your rebellion, the cost of your sin, the cost of your slavery to these things himself. 
And in its place, Jesus gives us mercy and grace. That's how the Lord and the master of the universe, the one who holds the very fabric of the cosmos together and the one who created all things, that's how he executed his lordship over us, towards us. By taking your, your standing of slavery to sin and opposition to God and, and not holding that against you, but, but taking it on himself and absorbing himself. He used all that power all that power that Paul's been talking about, about who Jesus is, his supremacy and his sufficiency, to lift you out of your slavery to sin and give you a place of dignity and a place of identity and a place of, in, of inheritance and all the rights of God's family. Like that's what he did to you masters. Why would you then go and do anything different to your slaves? Look. Now if you're a master or in our environment a boss, then you are to do likewise, exercising, uh, the exercising of your role from a position of power should be done to elevate those around you so that they can see and celebrate the kind of change that Jesus brings into these environments so they themselves in turn can be shaped by the love of God in Jesus in us. This is the ethic that Paul's pushing across the table that should be in Christians. So as a Christian, whether you are a wife, a child, or a slave, whether you are a husband, a parent, or a master, you are expected to push the ethic of the love of Jesus into the roles that you find yourself in so that the relationships in those environments are shaped by Christ's supremacy and his sufficiency and not our insecurities and not our needs and not our uncertainties. So how is Jesus seen and celebrated in the various roles, and some of them aren't even in the list that we've looked at today, how is he seen and celebrated in the roles that we play as Christians in this community and then in the community out Side. Nowhere in this passage does Paul speak about rights. Instead, he talks about the ethic of the cross and how that pushes into marriages, families, and workspaces, and how we are to dial that out into our real lives. Well, that's, that's the work. That's the work we've got to get to. Let's pray. Loving God, we want to thank you that you are concerned that you do care deeply about our real lives and how they live in the various spaces that we live them in 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 our in marriages and relationships in families like we don't even have to be in a marriage we are in families in our workplaces all these different spaces that we find ourselves you are concerned but you don't just leave us to sort it all out ourselves, ourselves about how we would do this well. You have given us um, your son Jesus to be the role model, to be the ethic that we would then be animated with, that we would bring into our lives, that we would then go towards our wives, our husbands, our, our brothers, our sisters, our families, our workplaces. 
And so as Paul has been saying throughout, you know, chapter 3 and into chapter 4, would we set our hearts and our minds on the things that are above? Would our, would our hearts and our minds be shaped uh, by our knowledge and our understanding of how it is that Jesus has moved towards us? So that then that, as we, as we more and more understand that, that is how we move toward others. And in doing so, we enrich lives, we enrich culture. And Jesus is seen and celebrated in us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.